Uh, Dave was talking about you helping me edit the book. Now, this is what Susan Campbell gave me last week. And if you can see the front, it's quite well marked up. And <laughs> as I go through it, there's a... So she helped me quite a bit. Um, and, um, you know, that's the way it is. It's too bad I didn't have her expertise before I wrote the book, but that's the way it worked out. Anyways, we can always change things. So if you see things, uh, if you have questions, if you see gross errors... Um, I'm happy to hear from it and uh, or hear about it. Not happy, but I mean, uh, <laughs> I'll endure it and then make the correction. Okay. Um, who knows what reverse engineering is? Yes, sir. Uh, who are the uh, masters of this? Who, who, who perfected this? Chinese. Japanese and the Chinese. So, um, and I'm, it's actually a helpful way of looking at life sometimes too. If you can look and find out what the end goal is of a thing or what its design was intended to be or its uh, teleology is the fancy word, meaning it's designed towards development. If you can understand what something was designed to be, then you can understand the constituent elements or the steps or all the things that need to happen so that we can realize that. So uh, tonight, or today, I want you to look at uh, page 13 in the book. And there is a, a request from Jesus. Now this happened at the end of his life. Um, and uh, where is the um, microphone? It's, it was on the table. It's right there. So you, we'll start with that table. Um, let's have somebody read that, that passage. Now this is Jesus at the end of his life. He's praying to God in the garden. This is after the Passover. And this is right before he gets arrested that he prayed this. Where would you like to start? Just the, the italics. The yeah. The glory you gave to me. I have given to them, so that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, so they may be brought to complete oneness, so that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them, even as I, I'm sorry, as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me, where I am, and to see my glory, glory you gave me, because you loved me before the creation of the world. Okay, now you probably are aware that John 17 is one long recorded prayer of Jesus, uh, sometimes called the high priestly prayer, but it's everything that he poured out his heart to God ab about right before uh, his death. And so it's, it's sort of a summative understanding of what he thought his mission was about and what God's mission for him was all about and it's bringing everything to a climax. So I would like us to do a pretty close reading and unpack this today instead of just uh, jumping off onto the next thing. Let's try to understand 
line by line what the master wanted God to do or what he expected to have happen. So let's start with the first sentence and um, it's pretty simple. This is, uh, uh, it starts out with a proposition. What does he assert? Does he claim? What about the glory? The glory that God gave to Jesus has now what? To who's the them that it gets given to? To everybody that's in Christ or believes in Christ. Now, this is an amazing thing. Just think about it. Don't jump too fast. What is he really saying? Yes. Well, that's the goal. But is it a different glory? It's God's glory that we don't deserve and we can't produce on our own is given to us by Christ's request. And what does, if, if we receive that glory, what does he say it will lead to? Oneness. Oh, a, compl- a oneness. Does he qualify the oneness? Like, how one will we be? Does he give a standard of, of measurement that he says, okay, this is how much oneness I want you to have? Uh, I think he does, though. He qualifies it a little bit. What is the qualifier? As Jesus and God, the Father, are one, he is now suggesting that through the disbursement of God as glory to God's people, that we likewise can experience that kind of oneness. How would you define glory as it's being used there? Well, um, it, I'll talk about it in just a little bit, but it, it's usually, um, in the Bible, it's one of the ways that God manifests who God is. Uh, the technical Hebrew term is Shekinah. It's, it's a effulgence, or a, some sort of a manifestation of light and radiance that God allows to to proceed out of God in such a way that we, we catch something of what God is like, radiant, beautiful, stunning, and awesome. But uh, it isn't a thing. That's what we need to learn today. It isn't a thing. It's not like electricity. It's actually the manifestation of God. It's part of God. It's, it's one of the ways. God's infinite, so we can't experience God completely. So God secretes out certain dimensions of God's personality and allows us to experience that. And one of them is uh, glory. Now, last week, what did we say that God gives to us that is God? Uh, Yes, God is agape. And if you remember, I was trying to get across the point is that agape is not a thing. It's not a quality. It's not something that you can uh, obtain. It is actually, and it's so hard to talk about this because we depersonalize. I just made a mistake when I said it is. I don't want to refer to agape as it because John says agape is a personality, God, a being. So um, our human mind tends to reduce everything 
reduce everything down to depersonalized uh, linear steps that we have a tendency to do this with God. So we want to start out with God as God really is. One dimension of God is God is love. Another dimension is God is glory. glory. That's what God is. So now we start off with this amazing uh, assertion that the Lord is praying for, that the glory that was on Jesus or in Jesus, that God gave to Jesus when he was in his incarnation, is now what? Given to his followers. To his followers. Is it produced by you and me? No, it's a gift. It's something God puts God's Shekinah radiance, God's being inside of us for a reason. And the first one that he gives is so that that experience of God as glory will now become the basis for our oneness. As opposed to what other kinds of oneness have we tried uh, many times? Well, how do we try to achieve oneness with one another? Well, yes, marriage, yes. But I mean like in a, in a spiritual, uh, religious sense. How do, we, how do we define oneness? How do we... Uh, sometimes the social context. Uh, the church itself is supposed to be a manifestation of oneness. That we're one with one another. We formulate uh, creeds and doctrinal statements that we all then say, okay, well, we all agree with this, so now we are, what, mentally one? So there are a lot of different ways that human beings try to create oneness, but this isn't, this is a different kind of oneness. Jack, what do you think? Yes, and it's significant that the glory isn't coming directly from God, it's coming from Jesus. Yes, it's... Right. He's the, um, as Paul says, Jesus is what? The mediator. So part of the purpose of the incarnation was to become a mediator to bring who God is into our lives and, and enable us to become uh, able to handle this kind of intimacy with God. Jesus is the one that was the bridge to help us do that. Now, uh, what does this mean? I in them and you in me. If you did not know this was in the Bible, many of us would say what? This sounds like... Sounds like a Bob Dylan lyric. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a Bob Dylan lyric. Sounds like what some people would call New Age thought. I in them and you in me. What's the master saying here? Yes, what do you think, John? Uh, yes, by their indwelling, by God's indwelling of us, that we're going to become one with God, and by virtue of becoming one with God, then we share this oneness with one another. So this isn't a oneness that we share with one another that it's based on age or social class or interests or even whether you like the person. It's based on what? What's the grounds for this kind of unity? This, it's, it's personal and it's rooted in God actually living inside of each one of us. Yes, John? This, this is almost scary. 
something hurts us, it hurts him. It hurts Christ. Doesn't mean that. Uh, did everybody hear the question? Does it mean that? Well, it's interesting when um, Jesus appeared to uh, Saul, who becomes Paul. What does he say to him? What, what's the first question that he asks Saul? Why are you persecuting me? No, does he say my followers or does he say me? Why are you persecuting me? So, yes, in a mystical way, uh, we're so united with Christ that he experiences our sufferings and we experience Christ's sufferings, that we've been called to experience that, yes. So I have heard Christ more than I'm aware. Uh, undoubtedly. <laughs> Especially knowing you, yeah. <laughs> I'm just teasing. I'm just <laughs> Uh, undoubtedly, all of us have, if you want to look at it that way. Now, you have to be careful with this kind of language because you have to, we always have to remember theologically that Jesus is deity, and so then technically speaking, being omnipotent, that you can't really, actually hurt God. But in some mystical way, we're so united with one another that he takes it personally and takes it in some way as part of his mission to endure all of the pains that we afflict him with. That's part of the incarnation. So his sufferings go on in that sense. Well, uh, that's like a nice segue here because um, the next line says that they may be brought to complete oneness so that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Now, how is the world supposed to know this? He wants the world to know something. What does he want the world to know or come to know? That, that Jesus is from God. And how will the world come to know this? Just based here on what he's praying. So we will reflect the glory that he's given us. And the, the reflection of the presence is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's correct. So now we find out that, now if you take that sentence and divorce it from the rest of the New Testament, you could wind up in a, uh, an insane asylum. Because uh, if you're honest with yourself, how is it possible that any fallen, finite, broken human, and we find out the older that we go along, I think, that just how broken we are, how are we ever going to truly magnify or enhance God? It's not possible. But now we find out what? It's not that we do it. How does, it, how does it work out? It's God actually puts God's glory 
in us, and then if we allow that glory to be manifested through us, then we wind up glorifying God. Actually, God winds up glorifying God in and through us. Now, doesn't that make God the greatest egotist in all of the cosmos? <laughs> Let's talk about that, because a lot of people have a big problem with that. What is this thing in the Bible about always, you know, God wanting to be glorified? Uh, Will Durant, uh, the great historian, uh, pounds on this notion all the time. It's one of the reasons that he left the Christian faith because he accuses God of being um, deeply insecure. And uh, how, this, how can God be God if God needs to be worshipped and petted and told how great God is? I mean, he took it in, in that extreme of a manner and wound up costing him his faith. So what is the Bible talking about when it's talking about us glorifying God? Is it? Yes. Okay, and, and how does, but what does this glorify mean? When it says when we glorify God, what, what happens? Because God's insecure and he needs to be praised, right? Yeah, lots of people believe that. We give it back to him. We, what we've done, he's given us the strength and courage and, and knowledge and know-how to do. Mm-hmm. And so... It's not us doing it. It's God doing it. Okay, great. So and we so give that back to him. Yeah, we give that praise to him because okay. he's the one that helped us. Because he needs it. No. No. <laughs> no. Then why, why all this emphasis on it? It, it, it because For it is others. who God is. So when the Bible says to glorify God, it really means to allow, let your life be such that it allows people to see God as God is. It's not that you can do anything to make God greater. It's that you allow God to be seen as God is. And when people see God as God is, then they appropriately acknowledge, because it's not God's fault that God is God, right? <laughs> I mean, if, if you're God, and you really are God, then what could be better? What could you ever give to another human being that would be better than... Yourself. That's not being egotistical. That's just a prime reality of, of life. So God is what God is, and God wants to have us experience God. That's a great gift. So this is what Jesus wants people to experience. And again, how is the world supposed to know that God really sent Jesus? How are they supposed to know that this is real, that we're not in an occult, you know, that this Christian church isn't just another cult? Does Jesus say there would be a way that the world would come to know that, that the incarnation really happened and it is real? By, our love. By the, the reality of this oneness of glory and love that the master said would be characterized of the Christian community. I think that's a, another way of knowing. One, one of the things I try to do in this book is to show that the apostles uh, said that we could know God and have experiences with God in ways that are beyond just the intellectual. And this is another one of these. Um, this isn't something that uh, is gonna be written down in a book the way the master's talking about it. He's actually saying that people that don't know God would be able to come and hang around with Christians and they would see what? They would have an experience of, of of what God is, God's love and glory. 
And th that would be the thing that would cause them to know. Yes? Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, that is, that's a case to be made for that. Some people have used that apologetics case. But if it's true, then wouldn't that be true for Islam as well? It, well, right, but I mean... They're wrong. Just, well, then, if that's what you really believe, let's, let's just think about this. Just because something lasts a long time doesn't mean what? That it's true. So, um, I mean, that's a logical fallacy, by the way, known as consensus gentium. Uh, just because everybody agrees on something doesn't make it right. Uh, so, your point's well taken. I mean, it, it is an amazing thing that the church has lasted for 2,000 years. But on the other hand, it was an amazing thing that the Eleusian mysteries last for 2,000 years, too. Of course, they were taking drugs, and that helps. But do you know what I'm talking about, the Eleusian mysteries? The gr greatest... Uh, cult in the history of the world lasted 2,000 years in Greece. Plato, uh, Socrates, all of them went there. And uh, they gave them something to drink and took them down into a cave and blew their mind. People think what it was was some mixture, the admixture of uh, ergot that was similar to LSD. And uh, they tripped them out and that, that cult lasted for 2,000 years. Isn't that amazing? So just because something lasts for a long time doesn't make it true. What so it's not duration here that he's focusing on. What is he focusing on as the evidence? What's going to be the compelling evidence that's going to make a, a person of the world say, hey, there's something here? Uh, yeah, a certain kind of a love, a quality of love, and, uh, and a oneness that isn't based on social class. Now just think about this. What, what makes people really anxious when they come and visit a church? What are some of the things that make people really anxious? Why people dress. Yes. Am I going to be dressed appropriately? And then, then that, once that gets put in, and this is like such a big problem that the book of James even addresses it. Do you remember him talking about this? About how certain people that are well-dressed are noticed and ushered into the best seats, and then people that are poor are not. That was going on in the first century church, so that they were having their problems too. Now, we don't really do it that, that baldly now, but if you walk into a church in which everybody is really dressed up and you're not dressed up, then what happens? I mean, ooh. And if you, if you can't dress that way, then you might not come back because you'll say what? I don't fit in with those, uh, in a new, whatever adjective, you know, highbrow people, fancy people, whatever you want to use. Yes? Yes, well, that's what the master seems to be uh, arguing for, that l we can experience a oneness with God and with one another that transcends things like your class, your social class, um, your, even your own intellectual interest, your hobbies, you, your, economics. your economics, your your age. <laughs> and it's supernatural, and so therefore, because it's so supernatural, and because it's so God-centered, it enables the people that don't yet know God to see this and say, what could possibly unite all of these disparate and different people? 
end this kind of love and oneness. And when social class is dismissed, and when age is dismissed, and when common interest is dismissed, and all of the factors that usually comprise everything that goes into making a club, when they all get dismissed and we say, well, that can't be it because that's not what's making this thing work, the, the person of the world is left with what? Well, what is making it work? It's God. Yes, this is what Jesus wanted to happen when people go to church. They have an experience of this cosmic glory and oneness that would be so intense that the only explanation would be God truly is among these people. Now, um, what do you think about the last line? Let's just maybe go over the last one. I want, you, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you gave to me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Now, that's an interesting, uh, it lets you know something interesting about the nature of reality. So before the world was created, what, what was going on? Uh, okay, the, the plan for Earth and maybe even other plans that we don't even know about. Yes, they were in the mind of God. What else was going on? What was the prime thing that was going on? God was, and what was happening there? There was love. Jesus and God were loving each other. And of course, as Christian theology develops, we can't build the entire theological edifice on just this one text. But later on, we find out what? That there was another person involved too, right? Another being, the Holy Spirit. And so how long have the Holy Spirit and Jesus and the Father been loving each other? Before creation. Okay, definitely before the creation of the world. That's before time. Then how long? This, is, this has been an ongoing... Now, if you want to have a great God experience today, go out, sit in the grass, look at the sky, and think about this. There never was a time when the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were not loving one another. There never was a time. And when you think about God's infinity, it is an amazing, mind-blowing experience to understand the depth and the, the magnitude of this. Yes, sir. Um, well, uh, outside of human time, but in some form of celestial time, there was a time when there were no angels, and then there was a time when angels came to be. So they're created. But it wasn't inside of earth time. It was in, in some other form of reckoning that we can't understand. Time means something to us simply based on what? How, what is time? How do we define time? It's, it's, a, it's a heliocentric uh, clock that we live inside of, but it's not, it's not total reality. So it just, it's our little clock that works for us. Hold on one second. So in celestial time, there was a time when there were no angels. Then there was a time, I say that loosely, in celestial time, an event took place in which angels came to be, and then in some undisclosed amount of time, duration, at a certain point, some of them decided that they would test this hypothesis as to whether this being that is telling them that I am God and I made you, 
they decided to test that hypothesis to see if it was reasonable. This is what John Milton wrote about in Paradise Lost. They, they find themselves thrown down out of heaven, and now they have to ponder the significance of what happened to our hypotheses. Why didn't it work out? And, of course, as they go into hell, across the banner, across the top, Satan's motto is, better to reign in hell, who knows the second part, than to serve in heaven. That's, that's engraved in Milton's book, you know, Across the Gates of Hell. So that's, that's the theory of that, yeah. So not on the front porch. Um, coming to consciousness as an entity and determining what every one of us has to do, and that is, will we let God be God in our lives or not? Yes, Dr. Smith. How did the angels come into being? Oh, the, by direct <coughs> creation. God created. Yes, um, the interesting thing about them is um, they're not biological creatures, <coughs> so they don't have DNA, so they don't reproduce. That's why the Master said in Matthew 22, verse 30, that glorified humans in the next life you will be as angels. You won't be an angel, but you'll be like angels in that they neither marry nor are given in marriage. So my advice to you is have as much sex in this lifetime as you can. Because <laughs> in the next life, I, I understand, but <clears throat> it's never too late for miracles, so I just... <laughs> so does that mean that, that Satan is also a son of God? Well, made in God's image in the sense of sharing of certain qualities and characteristics that um, God puts into entities, sentient entities like us. This is the, the image of God is not based on our carbon form. It's based on our uh, the spiritual <coughs> qualities that we have, our intellectual qualities, our ability to love, to reason, to choose. And angels have that in spades above us. So, Now, what we want to turn this back to now is to understand what? Whether angels are part of our discussion or not, we now know what? That from all eternity, what was going on? God was loving. There was an internal dance and rhythm of cosmic love going on from all eternity. And so therefore, that's one theological inference that we can draw from this that Augustine did is, is that God did not need us. Why not? Because a lot of people think God made us because God was lonely. And it was Saturday night and there was nothing to do. And so <laughs> I have to create little mud puppets so that they can <laughs> sing praises to me. No, that's not why it happened at all. Why, why did God do it? God did not need us. Just so, well, yes, but we didn't exist yet. So why would God bring into existence creatures that, like us, or even angels? Yes, the love that the Trinity had was so awesome that God just wanted to give that as a gift to people so that they could enjoy who God really is. It's all a gift. It's not a need. Yes, John? Well, that brings up an interesting point. In, we, 
Well, yeah, especially when you understand that we're designed to live forever with God. So, yes, that's true. Our carbon-based life form is destined to pass away. But I, I just I see a lot of uh, fogginess when, when myself and, and we try to you know, conceive. I think the point is we see ourselves in these separate states, in these separate entities. And, you know, I still am a spiritual entity. Yes. Right. Okay, so good. So, <clears throat> anybody else want to comment on anything else? Do you understand what Jesus' plan and purpose is here? Uh, yes, sir. Isn't there also another miracle that takes place in this 17th chapter of John that bears right upon this? When you, you just read this and didn't have the rest of the chapter, chapter you could conclude that Jesus is talking about his disciples and that this miracle of transference only went to them. But in a, another part of the prayer, he prays for all of us who in the future will come to know this glory because of the teachings of these ones that had the immediate contact with, with Christ. Well, let's, so he's praying for us as well. Yeah. We can insert our own names and pronouns into this very two verses that you quoted here. Uh. Yes, and, and that is so important. Let's, let's turn to John 17, and let's actually read this. And it starts at verse 20 of John 17. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their message, so that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so that they may uh, also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Yes, so we are included in this prayer. And we're specifically included. We're not just to assume we're included. He says we're included. Yes. So, now you now know what is true about you if you are a Christian. What, what can you conclude just based on what you've learned so far. Okay, but we always, we always think Jesus says the truth. The truth about what? What, what, what does God want us to experience? Definitely he wants us to experience his love. What should, the, what should the church be what, when we gather together as not going to church, just being the church? We should be the agents of love. We, we are... It's it out there to everybody that we come in contact with. Okay, yes? We should be displaying a, an at-one-ment with God, then an at-one-ment with one another, and what should be the pulsating uh, quality that should characterize these relationships? Glory. Yes, it glory. should be glorious. Glory. It should be glorious. And it wouldn't be rooted in us, it would be flowing in and through us, 
that it's really rooted in God. It's not something we can generate. Um, well, yeah, the word uh, at one minute or atonement is actually a made-up word. They made it up. Right, so that's a good point, especially in light of what Jesus is talking about, this oneness. All right, so in the time that we have left, let's go through a little bit of the history of God's glory in the Bible, and then I want to talk a little bit about 2 Corinthians 3, which I do in the, in the chapter, and what it means, and then, then the final thing, this experience that God wants us to have. Uh, what's the greatest display of uh, glory in the history of the Bible that you can think of? When you think about displays of glory, glorious experiences. The burning bush. Uh, you could say the burning bush. The transfiguration. The transfiguration. Uh, it was probably the number one. Um, and, uh, of course, in I thought I brought my uh, icon today. I thought I had it in the in the box, but you all know what an icon is, right? And I have, I have one that was made in Athens, Greece, and it shows a picture of the transfiguration. What's always surrounding Jesus' face? Uh, why? It's God's glory. So if you can tell us, yeah, but the problem is, is that if you look carefully at the icon, uh, icons that they make, that Jesus isn't the only one that has a, a little saucer behind his head. Uh, other people do, and that's signifying in that kind of Christian art what? That the glory that is in Christ is being given to these people, so they're all radiating in glory. So the transfiguration is probably the apex of the display of God's glory. Yes, John? Yeah, we're going to go there in just a second. Right, that's, that's another one. Um, so, uh, who was with Jesus, by the way, when he was transfigured? Uh, Peter, John. Peter, James, and John. Who else was there? Moses and Elijah. Why those two? Uh, no, Moses died. Elijah was taken up, but Moses died. Why, why, of all the people in all of the Bible, why do those two show up? Um, yeah, they had those experiences, but there's a, something God's trying to convey to us. Uh, yes, but why Moses? Oh, that's such a sweetheart of a thought. <laughs> because, because he didn't get to go into the promised land, so God was making it up to him. Yeah, <laughs> That's really a nice sentiment. And, and there probably is some truth to it, too. Uh, what does Moses stand for? The law. What does Elijah stand for? The prophets. He's the, he's the first and foremost of the prophets. So what God did was show that the law and the prophets were pointing to what? Jesus as the word, the final word. And then this transfiguration takes place. 
uh, that is designed to show us that everything is about Jesus. All right, so then when we get to 2 Corinthians 3, we don't have time to read it today, but Paul makes a contrast between the experience that Moses had when Moses went up to the mountain. John, do you want to tell us a little bit about this? He goes up to the mountain. He speaks with God face to face. He comes back down, and, and what do the Israelites see? What do they... What's their experience? He was too bright. So they tell him to do what? Put a veil over his face. So when he comes out and speaks to them, he has his face veiled. When he goes and speaks with God, he takes the veil off and speaks to God face to face. Why does Paul say that? Now, they said that put the veil on because it's too bright. But Paul says that there's a deeper symbolic meaning. Why did he put the veil on for real? Um, uh, they, it's not that you're not allowed to it's just that you can't handle it uh, it would blow your mental circuits so God and God's mercy doesn't let us see the full effulgence of who God really is well Paul actually says you can read it later in 2 Corinthians 3 that God did this because the f- glory that was on Moses' face was fading. It was fading. And so it was fading because Moses is the author or the agent by which the law was given to us. And this was a temporary glory. It was only to last for a certain amount of time. It had some glory attached to it because it was a revelation from God. But it was a fading glory. It was a temporary glory. It wasn't supposed to last forever. And so he put a veil over his face so that they wouldn't see the glory fading away. And that fading away glory now is found in its completion in the new covenant in Jesus, because now Jesus, because of what Jesus did for us, he gives to us what? Not a fading glory, but the glory of God. So this was a symbol that was about the old covenant pointing us to the new covenant, the permanent covenant that God was going to uh, erect through Jesus. Now, who's got a, a Bible that they could read a text for us? Um, I want you to find 2 Corinthians. Where's the, where is the um, microphone? What happened to it? Let's move it to another table and have somebody read this passage for us. you to look at verse 6 of chapter 4. This is the meaning of this fading glory and the permanent glory. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 6. It starts off, but the God who said, and who's reading now? Chapter 4 verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. All right, now he's laying on this old covenant, new covenant model. 
yet another layer of meaning. When did God said, when was he alluding to when he says, when God, the God who said, let light shine? What is he alluding to? To creation. So that's the old creation. At the dawning of creation, God said what? Let there be this glorious light. And now he says in the new creation through Christ, what does God do for us? Shines the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So this is an internal glory that God puts inside of every Christian when they embrace Christ. It's given to you, the glory of God. Why? Now let's find the last two texts and you'll see God's plan for how God wants to minister in this world. What does he say Jesus is in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15? I'll read it to you. Some of you didn't bring a Bible. He is the image of the invisible God. That's what it says. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And the Greek word that he uses there is icon. So what's an icon? It's an image. And Orthodox and Catholics make icons because... And we have some in this church too. Why? To their visual representations that remind you of a cosmic truth, of something that God has done or some great thing that God has done. So Jesus is the ultimate icon of God. Now I do need somebody to read this one. Colossians 3, 9 through 10. We have another table uh, that somebody could do it. And let's see what God's plan is for this uh, we need Colossians chapter 3 verses 9 through 10. Who's got it? Well, it doesn't matter. 3, 9 through 10? Yeah. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. All right, what does God say that God is doing inside of the Christians? Renewing us into what? Becoming like the image of the one that created so do you realize the significance of this? this? Jesus is the icon of God. And we are now being renewed or transformed into that very same image. For real. Or is this just a metaphor? Th this is God's cosmic plan. That you and I are to become uh, icons that are very highly similar to Jesus. Absolutely perfect? Never. But to a very high degree, renewed into that same image so that, this is God's plan, when people come and hang out with Christians, what's supposed to happen? They're, they're actually supposed to have an experience with Christ not just a bunch of words about Christ, they're actually supposed to experience Christ. 
How are they supposed to experience Christ? They don't know Christ yet. Living inside of you. It's supposed to be so real that meeting you to a certain extent is not perfectly, but substantively supposed to be like hanging out with Jesus. And then when you put us all together, it's supposed to be very powerful. That's how God wants to bring people to faith. Yes, go ahead. Oh, yes. It was so bright that Mark says, like with almost naivete, that his clothes were whiter than any cleaner could have made them. <laughs> what, that he was transfigured? That his Well, um... I would say his life, if, if you, and I'll give you a short answer because we're running out of time. Gospel of John, chapter one, John says, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We saw him, we saw his glory. So the way John came to see it is that you, you'd understand Jesus' life was a radiance. Now that was a peak experience. I don't think every day he walked around with you know beams of light coming out of him, but uh, I think it is normative that to understand that that nimbus, that radiance that they painted around them, that's not just an artistic imagination. That is a characteristic testimony of the early church that Christians radiated. They they shone with the glory of God. Okay, you guys have to go. Have a awesome day and uh, if you want to go forward read the next chapter in the book that's your assignment uh, that'll be chapter uh, three yep okay have a great day yep